Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Um, I found a copy of James Baldwin's Just Above My Head in this box um, of my mom's book club books. And it was like, it was a surprise find because it was mostly like Harlequin in there, some Sidney Sheldon, um, V.C. Andrews, right? And so then like I'm piling through. I read some of them, um, but when I found that James Baldwin book, I mean, it had no pictures on the cover, so that was something. Um, and so I read it, and it was the first book to make me cry. Um, and um, I was also reading whatever my older sister gave me, which was mostly Stephen King and Dean Koontz, and so I didn't really feel like I found my kind of reading. I was just reading whatever people gave me, and so finding this book was, I mean, it was the first time I had read anything with um, queer characters, um, and it was just this sense of, like, longing and trying to find identity and all these things that I, um, that I was currently feeling myself, and so that big book just really grabbed me, and I couldn't shake it, so then instantly, of course, I read everything he wrote, um, and all of his work is about that kind of longing, looking for identity, you know, who am I, um, and I, I feel very much that um, even now, I'm still, like, trying to figure out who I am, you know, as a woman, as a woman of color, as a woman who loves women, and um, trying to figure out all these things, and so now I'm sort of, like, writing through it, and um, so I still very much um, keep Baldwin with me, so that's my kind of past situation. All right. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> uh, so my... Uh, debut novel, uh, Let the Lover Be, came out last August. I am thrilled. Um, it is a story of a um, functional alcoholic who goes to New Orleans to um, try to stop her ex-lover's wedding. And I am going to read a, uh, when she first, when our main character, Kiana, when she arrives in New Orleans uh, on her love mission. The elevator door opened directly into the penthouse suite. The scene blew Kiana away. Tall, slender men in white waistcoats and black tuxedo pants walked around with silver trays of colorful, oddly shaped treats and bubbling glasses of champagne. No one looked in Kiana's direction. The party, in full swing, buzzed with conversation. Bursts of laughter rumbled from every corner of the room. The slow whine of a trumpet and hungry grunts of a tuba accented the light, fast-paced groove set by a drummer and pianist in the far corner of the suite. Kiana stood just outside the elevator doors, which had yet to close behind her. She searched the small crowds of people, the guests, a mixed collection of strangers in fancy strapless gowns and tailored dinner jackets. She took a step forward, and an older white couple with the most stunning silver hair looked at her, their sharp blue eyes calculating, evaluating, then dismissing her. Kiana looked down at herself. She adjusted her gray dress shirt on her shoulders. She slid one hand into her black slacks and grabbed a full champagne flute from a tray passing on her right. 
Kiana knew Michelle was marrying into money, but she wasn't expecting the embroidered silk sofas and marble statues, the crystal chandeliers and mahogany bar lined with white leather stools. She remembered a different Michelle, a Michelle who put her last two dollars in the raggedy jukebox at Tom's to play Steer It Up five times in a row. A Michelle who, drunk off Malibu and pineapple juice, bought Lucy Cools two at a time and always gave one away. Kiana drained the champagne, and before she brought the empty glass from her lips, an attentive server appeared at her side to offer her another. She replaced her empty glass with a new one, nodding her thank you. She sipped this one, letting the tart bubbles dance on her tongue. She wandered around the grand space, looking around, smiling a tiny smile at the few people who looked at her for more than a second. Kiana circled the entire party and found her way back to the bar. She placed her empty champagne glass on the shiny mahogany surface. The bartender, a red-headed man with a ruddy face and aquamarine eyes, wiped the inside of a glass and winked at her. She leaned forward to order a drink when she heard it. Michelle's laugh. Michelle's laugh, energetic and bright, exploded in the air and floated down like confetti. Kiana turned. Michelle stood a short distance away, ten feet at the most, one hand on her hip and the other resting on the shoulder of a short, balding white man with a bushy mustache, who obviously said something absolutely hilarious. He gestured with his hands and Michelle laughed again, just as loud and carefree and beautiful as before. Kiana's mouth went dry. Michelle was stunning. An emerald green dress caressed every slope and curve of her body. The bodice, corset-like and fashioned with black lace, held her cinnamon brown breasts up and out. Her hair, which she used to wear wild and curly, was swept up into an elegant bun from her neck to her shoulders, every line of her body a graceful and intentional invitation to admire God's most beautiful creation. Michelle laughed again, quieter this time, but no less intoxicating. The bartender cleared his throat, and Kiana turned to him, panicked, suddenly terrified and anxious. She took a deep breath and licked her lips. Can I get you something? he asked, smiling. Kiana couldn't find her voice, but she heard Michelle's. She glanced over her shoulder as Michelle, her voice clear and bright as ever, introduced herself to the couple with the silver hair. The woman asked to see the ring. Michelle held out her hand. The woman took her hand and nudged her husband, who shielded his eyes with his hands, exaggerating only slightly. Even from where Kiana stood, the shine of the large diamond was impressive. The three of them continued to chat around the wedding plans for the week. The week? Kiana whispered to herself. What's that, lovey? The bartender said. I thought the wedding was tomorrow, she said. No, ma'am. A week from today, he said. I'm working the reception, he added with a proud smile. Kiana sighed and shook her head. Her mind reached back to the invitation, trying to remember the dates. All she could recall was Michelle and Michael. Union. Sunday. She frowned and continued watching Michelle entertain the distinguished-looking couple. When the man inquired about the whereabouts of her fiancé, Michelle, smi Michelle smiled graciously and said, Oh, my Michael will be here soon. He had an unexpected business call. My Michael. Kiana swallowed hard her heart pounding in her ears. Miss, can I get you something? It's an open bar, name your poison, the bartender said behind her. Kiana needed a drink, but she couldn't take her eyes off Michelle. It was good to see her, and she hated every second of it. 
As much as she wanted to go over to her, shove the silver-haired couple out of the way, and stand directly in front of her to ask her questions and demand answers, Kiana also wanted to disappear. In direct contrast to Michelle's firework laughter that exploded overhead in bright, vibrant light, she wanted to implode into darkness, into nothing. The couple brought Michelle into a hug, and when she turned her head to offer her cheek to the silver-haired gentleman, she saw her. She finally saw her. Michelle met Kiana's eyes, and Kiana, as if suddenly aware that flying down to New Orleans to confront her ex-lover meant actually confronting her ex-lover, turned around in a panic, trying to steady herself. Deep breathing didn't work. She squeezed her fists at her side. What will it be, the bartender asked again, forcing a smile through his obvious irritation. Makers, neat, Michelle said over Kiana's shoulder. She slid next to her, smiling. You remember, Kiana said, nearly choking on her breath and startled at how quickly Michelle had made her way to the bar. You actually remember, she said again. Thank you. Originally from Detroit. Anyone from Detroit? <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Originally from Detroit, Frederick Smith is a graduate of the Missouri School of Journalism and Loyola University, Chicago. He is the author of three novels focusing on queer people of color in LA, Down for Whatever, Right Side of the, of the Wrong Bed. I read them both, they're wonderful. Um, published by Kensington Publishing Corps and Play It Forward, published by Bold Stroke Books uh, this month. Oh, uh, no, it's February. It's been it was published last month. Um, he lives in Los Angeles um, and works with college students, helping them to explore their identities and social justice. He's also an important fixture in the literary scene here in Los Angeles. Please welcome Frederick Smith. Well, hi, and happy. I'm happy you came tonight. I know it's Friday. A lot of you are probably tired from work or probably wanted to be watching the NAACP Awards or going to a Grammy party or something like that. But you're here, and we all appreciate it. So thank you for coming. Um, in terms of my black queer writer influence, um, I go back to one that's tried and true for many of my generation, and that's Elan Harris. I love Elan Harris. We used to sneak and read his books in the high school bathroom. Um, and especially for us boys that liked boys but didn't, want to, didn't have voice to say what that was, we would sneak the books to each other or, you got to read this, you got to see what's going on between Basil and Raymond and, and uh, Kyle and all those people. Um, but what I really like about the books is that it really told stories that spoke to our generation. And I think that his stories are generationless and timeless. So whether it's 1975, 85, 95, 05, or 15, there's still um, men who can't find voice to, their, to express their own sexuality, their identity, their sexual orientation. Um, and I think that he speaks to like black middle class issues, um, black men who go to school and trying to find other black men who are equally yoked, et cetera. So Elon Harris is my go-to person and my um, influence in terms of black queer lit. Um, what I'm going to read from tonight is an excerpt from my new novel, Play It Forward. Um, Play It Forward focuses on um, a character named Malcolm Martin Campbell who runs 
an LGBT organization in Los Angeles that's focused on black queer youth. So it's set in South Los Angeles, and he devotes his life after a kind of a life in banking and finance um, after his father died decides to give it all up and do something with his passion. And that's really empower, empowering black queer young men um, in Los Angeles. So he starts a corporation or starts this you know, community organization, um, upstanding role model, um, does everything right, sends money back home to the family in Indiana, etc. Um, until some videos that he made but didn't know that he made showed up on the internet. And so that's what I'll be reading from this evening. So chapter one from Play It Forward. And this is from Malcolm Martin Campbell. June 2009. Much of the trouble started when that video I made, but didn't really make, hit the internet. I was on my second round of Grey Goose and Tonics with my best friend Kyle and his longtime love Bernard. It was a 70-degree Sunday evening in June, just before the large of younger black guys made their way into the Abbey in West Hollywood, just before the ambient lounge music transitioned to the current hip-hop songs. Though we enjoyed a good time out, we enjoyed it with the company of other 30-somethings and at a time of day when we could actually hear our conversations above the sound of music. Kyle Bernard and I were this close to winding down our time together as we all worked and had somewhere to be on Monday morning when Bernard, the troublemaker that he is, brought up the long-gone Clinton-Obama rift of 2008. He knew how to get me started and thus delay our departure. I still can't believe you voted for that, Lady Malcolm. Bernard said rather loudly, his cocktail swirling but never spilling out of the glass in his left hand. I'm still holding that against you. You lost your black card with me. That's when I noticed my phone ringing, a call from my sister in Indiana, a downer, much like the political debate Bernard was trying to reel me into again. I wasn't feeling having this political commentary over cocktails, especially for an election competition that was a year behind us. Bernard kissed Kyle on the, key, on the cheek, and they gave each other that look that lovers give when they want to do couples things in bed later. I felt like quite the third wheel, though it's something Kyle and Bernard would never say out loud. We've been doing our Sunday afternoon meetings at the Abbey for years, even before black people started taking over the Abbey on Sundays. <laughs> the Abbey was known for its pricey mojitos and martinis of all flavors. But most people ignored, ignored the prices, as the bar was the best place to see and be seen in gay and gay-friendly L.A. We were all playing Hollywood, even if it wasn't our reality. I'd exchanged my standard khaki pants and button down for something a little more casual and Abbey-worthy. <laughs> Hollywood, I could never quite fit the part or find myself paying for those designers and labels that many wore just because. I'd never been the fit-in-just-because type. As my friends hugged and kissed each other, out of the corner of my eye, I could see a group of young brothers, probably in their early 20s, staring and pointing our way. First, I thought it was the rare surprise of seeing black-on-black -black romance in West Hollywood that caught their curiosity and attention. <laughs> black guys were friends, not potential love interests in West Hollywood, after all. I was sure none of them had had any black romantic couples as role models. But then again, but then again, I couldn't assume anything these days. 
My work with young black gay men at the LADS organization opened my eyes that not everyone grew up middle class with two parents like I did. The job definitely challenged my upbringing and comfort zone. Nothing was a surprise. Anything could happen and often did. Much like it did when one of the 20-something men dressed in a black v-neck t-shirt, gray shorts, black Oakland Raiders hat nodded his head at me as a directive to walk his way. I excused myself from Kyle and Bernard as they were on their way to third base and ignoring me anyway, <laughs> and walked across the room toward the massive fireplace near the front of the abbey where brother stood. Hey, I said, didn't know, what, didn't know much else to say. His presence intimidated me a bit. Young, athletic, cute, masculine, definitely not the type that will put me in his target demographic. I knew he had to be a good 10 years younger than me, but I wasn't looking for any type of romantic relationship, so shyness and intimidation wasn't necessary. As I got closer to him, I could tell he loved Hane Mori Cologne, smelled good on him. What up, bro? I'm Compton. Not much, I said. I'm Malcolm. He held out his free hand to fist bump mine. What you up to? Just about to head out, I said, deepening my voice, shortening my phrasing, performing masculinity. Came in earlier with a couple buddies over there. This small talk on looking good was definitely a setup for a one-nighter, since we hadn't even really exchanged names or information yet. After a couple gray goose and tonics, I could have been game had brother not looked like one of the clients I served at LADS. I wasn't going to turn into one of those 30-something midlife crisis cases who got off on picking up guys who could be their younger brother, cousin, or worse yet, son. Back in my 20s and early 30s when I was single and desperately, desperately looking for anyone and working at the bank, I would have taken a chance. I would have taken a guy like this home for the night. No questions asked, no background check, sometimes no names exchanged. That's how I ended up with a string of exes whose lives were the social issue of the month. Now I was happily single and looking for more than a one-night-only kind of arrangement. And I definitely wasn't looking for drama or to help someone else solve their drama. That was only for work. My phone rang again, my sister again from Indianapolis. Must be urgent. No one, no one calls long distance over and over without some kind of emergency. I knew something had to be up. What's going on, Marlena? I said. Don't laugh at my sister's name. Our mom loved days, in the li days of our lives back in the day. <laughs> it's your nephew. That's what's going on, she said. She sounded pissed off once more about Blake, her oldest son, my only nephew. Again, don't laugh at my nephew's name. My sister loved Dynasty as a teenager. <laughs> what did Blake do now? He's still spending all his goddamn time on that damn internet, meeting all kinds of strangers, Marlena said. I just walked in on him getting, are there any kids here? getting special treatment from this boy from down the street he went to high school with. And the house reeked of weed. I can't take it no more. My sister Marlena had always had a difficult time with Blake. Her other kids, the twin girls, were angels compared to their older brother, born in Marlena's senior year of high school. So you're calling me for what, I said. I mean, I knew she needed to vent. Who wouldn't after catching their 19-year-old son getting special treatment from a neighbor? I'm tired of his black ass. You hear me, Blake? Tired of your black ass. I should have put him out a long time ago, Marlena yelled to me, and I assumed a Blake who'd probably slammed his bedroom door and wasn't paying attention to his mother. I can't put up with his trifling ass no more. I'm sending him out to California for the summer to stay with you. Since he wants to be a rapper, ain't no such thing as a gay rapper, Blake. 
Compton walked out to the patio door and toward me, with my sister putting me on the spot and Compton looking kind of good in that black v-neck. As he walked my way, I was ready to give Compton a one night only after the Abbey, or at minimum a wee-ho hello in the parking structure around the corner. Sometimes one-nighters aren't just about the sex. Sometimes they're a momentary denial to help get through life's realities. What up, man? You coming back or what? Okay, I said, and realized I'd answered both Marlena's and Compton's request. Thanks, then we'll talk, we'll talk tomorrow, Marlena said, just as Compton replied, cool, I'll see you inside. <laughs> I met Compton in the spot where I'd left him a few minutes earlier in front of the fireplace. He'd finished his first drink, He'd finished the first drink his friend had given him and was well into his second, all in a matter of 10 minutes or less, mess. Anyway, Compton, I'm heading back to my buddies, I said. Good meeting you. Have a good one. Wait, Compton said and wrapped his free arm around my waist while his hand drifted lower to my butt. I want to show you something, man. Look. He put the iPhone screen in my face, his arm around my shoulder, and squeezed. If I were planning to sleep with him, I would have felt, it would have felt sexy. His touch was strong. I saw the homepage, I saw the homepage of an amateur X-rated site uploading. And then two seconds later, I was doing something pornographic with my mouth to, oh my God, I said, where did you get this? It's on Gay Click, Compton said, and whispered slash slurred in my ear. Hold on a sec, he said. This is how I recognize your ass across the room. Two seconds later, I was doing something pornographic, squatting up and down over, I gotta get out of here, I said. I felt like I was about to faint or vomit, but I kept it together. I walked through the crowd past Compton and his friends, who jeered and whist whistled as I walked by and out the front entrance of the Abbey. I'm sure they all thought I was some kind of porn star or sexual acrobat. Maybe back in the day, pre-2000s, like before camera phones and sex tapes and paparazzi and things that live forever on computers, that kind of reputation might have been cool because it was all word of mouth and not based on technology that could create a permanent marker of your reputation. Not today, as a man in my 30s with responsibilities, role modeling, clients, and a 19-year-old nephew coming to LA to spend the summer with me. I looked for him in the long line of men waiting to get into the club. Not my nephew, but the one who sold me out online. Sometimes he would make an Abby appearance on Sunday evenings when he knew I'd probably be gone home and he wouldn't have to face me. He wasn't in line, no sign, went one thing, he was at his place with the one he left me for, and that's where I knew I'd be heading before I went home to my place. On the way to his house, my mind raced with a million messages I'd given to the young men at Lads. At the Thursday night Lads rap group, three days earlier, I'd facilitated a talk called Click This Hit That, specifically on the issues and concerns that can come with online presence and life and personal safety and how young men should exercise caution online if they ever aspire to do anything beyond what they currently did to, to make ends meet. After all, I said, and looked around the room at young black men of all shades and sexual orientations, Barack Obama never thought in a million years he'd be president, and he most certainly wouldn't have reached his goal if he'd ever sent or posted dirty pics of himself during his younger days on a computer or a cell phone. Some of the guys snickered and laughed, a sign of guilt, I'm sure, that they'd already seen or they had, uh, they had already sent or seen plenty of inappropriate pictures on their technology and gadgets. Reality check, that's just what young people did.
But he smoked out, didn't he? So what's your point, Mr. Malcolm? They didn't even have cell phones or computers back in those days. Question from the back from Sergio, a newcomer to lads and lads rap meetings. Because in case you didn't know, you're talking to us born in the 90s, and online is where it's at for our generation. I loved and hated the pointed questions I got from the men who attended the group. Lads rap was a new discussion group created by my front desk attendant, my personal pet project, DeMarco Jennings. It was designed as a way to engage young men in current events in a not-so-preachy way. DeMarco was great at the engagement part. I wasn't so great at the not-so-preachy part, but found ways to hold my tongue and make the weekly, weekly discussions a success. Because Sergio was new to lads and Thursday night and the Thursday night lads rap, I reminded him and the group that we came together to become smart and sexually empowered in our discussions and interactions. I reminded him and the group of our community agreements, specifically number eight, respect is important. Sometimes we're the only supporters we have. Before returning to the conversation about videos, future goals, and how current decisions can make an impact on all of it. DeMarco, just to make a point to the group's newcomer, recited the lads' community agreements, or steps to becoming a smart, culturally empowered, and sexually empowered young man. Number one, lads will learn to make smart and sexually empowered decisions for their lives and health. Number two, lads have a right to say no. No one is entitled to sex or a hookup, no matter what they gave you or bought for you. Number three, lads respect that no means no and never force, coerce, pressure someone into sex against their will. Number four, lads have a right to ask and know his sexual health status, the right to insist on condoms at all times, and the responsibility to know and disclose your health status. Number five, just because he's a top and you are or just because he's a bottom and you are doesn't mean you two can't have a meaningful and long-term sexual or romantic relationship. Number six, lads don't give him your online passwords, account numbers, or a rundown of your schedule when you're not with him. Possession does not equal love. It might equal crazy. Number seven, being smart Culturally empowered and sexually empowered lads means knowing who you are but refusing to be confined to that knowledge. Eight, lads support each other. Sometimes we're the only support we have. Number nine, lads support the brotherhood and aren't complicit in, in it tearing down the brotherhood by sleeping with or getting involved with men who are involved with someone else. And number 10, love yourself. Remember your black LGBT and black LGBT history and elders by building upon their legacy of struggle and excellence. So, I'm sure some of you know someone who has been burned by something they put online. Anyone got a story? Do you have one, Mr. Malcolm? Sergio said and smiled. I'd love to hear about Mr. Malcolm's online sexcapades. Some of the young men chuckled and perked up in their seats while waiting for my response. It was like this every week, no matter the topic, for conversation to lead eventually back to me. I knew it was a sign they cared and were learning something. However, looking back on the meeting three days earlier, my response would come to haunt me. Sorry, gentlemen, I said and smiled, but I would never do anything online that would harm or hurt my career or reputation. I've worked too hard for that, and I would hope you'd do the same with all the hard work you're doing for your future goals. What a hypocrite three days can make. As I pulled in front of his apartment complex, I said a little prayer. I'm not a super religious person, but I knew calling in the wisdom and positive energy of a higher power was the only thing that would save him and me from being the top story on tonight's 11 o'clock news. Thank you.
And that was Fred Smith, ladies and gentlemen, Fred Smith. Um, a few announcements. One is that there is a, a Black History uh, Month community meeting on Thursday, February 26th in Solidarity Hall. If you need childcare, please call a few days um, in advance. Or check out RadicalWomen.org. If there's a representative here, talk right there. Talk. Talk to them about the event on um, the 26th. Also, want to remind you, we are social media friendly. Okay, so tweet, Instagram, Facebook, uh, hashtag QPOC, hashtag Black LGBT, <laughs> at Skylight Books. I think I, I saw some of your tweets come in. I loved it. I retweeted it to our 21,000 followers, you know, so just keep them coming. All right. Okay, so our next writer. I'll take a deep breath before I say this bio. So, Rebecca Weatherspoon, unofficial bio, I love to dance. Official bio, after years of meddling in her friends' love lives, Rebecca turned to writing romance as a means to surviving a stressful professional life. She has worked in various positions from library assistant, meter maid, middle school teacher, B-movie production assistant, reality show crew chauffeur, D-movie producer, and her most fulfilling job to date, lube and harness specialist at Neurotic Boutique in West Hollywood. <laughs> All right, yes, okay. Her interests include Wonder Woman collectibles, cookies, James Taylor, quality hip-hop, football, American muscle cars, large breed dogs, and the ocean. When she's not working, writing, reading, or sleeping, she's watching Ken Burns documentaries and cartoons or taking dance classes. If given the chance, she will cheat at UNO. <laughs> she was raised in southern New Hampshire and now lives in Southern California with an individual who is much more tech savvy than she will ever be. Her novels include At Her Feet and Treasure. She is a member of, of Romance Writers of America. Please welcome Rebecca. Uh, quickly, Fred and I will be speaking at the uh, 2015 LA's Writer Conference. Uh, at Mount St. Mary, so definitely go online. Here's the flyer. We have some more flyers as well to uh, come out and see us. Um, let's see. This is tough. As far as my queer black writing influences go, um, I was raised in the New England prep school set. Um, so for me, reading was more or less just to get an A. Um, and it was just to finish the assignment. I think I've probably skimmed 5,000 books and retained two. Um, so for me, I, I feel like the first almost 20 years of my life, I wasn't really reading books. I was just completing them to complete an assignment. Um, when I was about 22 or three, I started making more friends online and meeting more people. And my online friends introduced me to romance. And one of my friends was nice enough to send me a bunch of books from Bold Strokes Books. Um, and one of the books she sent me was Such a Pretty Face by Gabriel Goldsby. Um, that book is about a plus-size Latina whose family is pressuring her to lose weight, uh, which I could relate to. Um, and in reading that book, I kind of was one surprised that I was reading a romance about a plus-size woman, and then I was reading a romance by a black woman that wasn't forcing any kind of stereotypes at all. It was about the romance and it was about these individuals and what they were going through and that really spoke to me. Um, one of the blessings about writing for Bold Strokes books is one, all the authors are still alive. 
the most part. Um, so I was able to reach out to Gabriel and email her and say I read your book and you know I was up till four in the morning crying and it was great and that kind of started this beautiful dialogue where I was able to talk to her about wanting to write romance and wanting to write um, the stories that spoke to me and the stories that I wanted to put out there. Uh, so it was great to just ha be able to have that dialogue with her. So when I started writing, um, the first thing that came to me was a story called Better Off Red. Um, Better Off Red is the first in a series about basically a coven of vampires that uses sorority girls to feed their bloodlust. Um, when I came up with the idea, I thought this is such a horrible, corny idea that if I don't do this, I'm going to be kicking myself and the next thing I know, the CW will come out with something similar and I will be so pissed that I didn't write it. Um, so I sat down and ended up kind of creating this whole universe of a diverse group of young girls and women and they have kind of wacky adventures and blood feedings and blood orgies and getting to class on time. It's very bizarre, but anyway. Um, so I'm going to read from uh, Better Off Red. Uh, the story starts, each book in the series features a different um, college girl and the vampire she is responsible for feeding. Um, the first book starts off with a young lady named Ginger. She's adopted into like a mixed family. She's got you know, a black brother. Her mom's like a stoner hippie. Um, her dad is like old mob, but he ran away from the mob. It's like this kind of really weird mix. And Ginger, um, in a way, is actually if anyone's read Twilight or heard of it, she was what I wished Bella Swan had been, like had some damn sense. I don't know. So I, I wanted to write a character who was like realistically questioning what was going on around them. Um, so I'm just gonna, it's, I'm gonna read a short bit just from the very beginning, kind of introducing Ginger and her roommate, Amy. I have an idea. Amy threw her bag down on the floor and perched on the end of her mattress. I put down my pen and turned around. What, I said. Let's rush. Where? No, no, rush, stupid, like join a sorority. <laughs> Hell no. I'd just gotten used to sharing a broom closet's worth of space with another human being. Our entire hall had a single shower. I was just getting over the fact that I had to plan my masturbation me time around my roommate's class schedule, but this was asking too much. Ginge, come on. Amy, my darling, you are more than welcome to auction your brain off in exchange for endless amounts of upbeat time excuse me, to the highest bidder. I won't stop you, I said. But there's no way in hell, no way I'm joining a sorority. I already have tons of studying to do. You're a gym major, she said, with a condescending glare. Just hear me out. Ugh, fine. And I'm not majoring in gym. Right, whatever. Here's what I'm thinking. We're too young to get into any of the good bars downtown, and all the 18 and up places are just packed with people from our gen ed classes. There are parties on the row all the time. Parties I want to go to. The row, I said? You're already into this. You're in deep, talking about the row and everything. Just listen to me. My sister said the parties on the row are the best and they're invite only. If we rush, we get to meet all the people who throw the party. So even if we don't actually pledge, we'll meet tons of guys. Guys who will invite us over when it's all over, you see. 
I chewed the inside of my lip, thinking over the nonsense she was talking. I didn't give a crap about meeting guys. There were thousands of them, of them on campus, and I even sat next to a few of them in some of my classes. I'd worked hard to get into Maryland University. Their exercise science program was one of the best in the country, and I'd, my workload this semester was more than enough to keep me busy. Getting involved in Greek life was just another slice of the pie I, I did not want to add to my plate. Even if I had all the free time in the world, there was still no draw. I didn't have anything against sorority girls, but I never considered myself to be that kind of a joiner. If Amy had asked me to go out for the Frisbee golf team, then sure, that was the sort of group activity I could handle. <laughs> the thought of slapping on a smile for the next however many days, pretending to be perfect just so some girls I didn't know and had no real interest in getting to know could tell me I was cool enough to walk around with them in matching t-shirts, well, it made me want to roll my eyes at Amy and dive right back into my chem notes. From the eager look on her face, though, I, I knew that this type of blow-off was not going to fly. Please, there's this mega-cute guy from China in my, <coughs> excuse me, in my econ class. I would love to see him in his natural habitat. I only had known Amy for a few weeks. She was cute, perky blonde, perky in every way. We got along great, except for moments like this. It was obvious she wasn't used to taking no for an answer. I, however, had no problem saying it. I just wasn't sure if telling Amy to shove it was a good way to keep the peaceful air between us. I took a deep breath and squeezed my eyes shut. Maybe this was the right moment to tell Amy I was 77% sure I was a lesbian, but that might create a whole other problem. The last thing I wanted was my roommate, a roommate who was scared that I was going to fill her up in her sleep or check her out while she was getting dressed in the morning. When I opened my eyes, Amy was clapping. I watched this dopey grin stretch across her face to full capacity, and then I stared at her as this weird squeal came through her clenched teeth. Apparently, taking a moment to get my head together was the same thing as saying yes. Ugh, fine. Fine? Her voice pitched higher than I'd ever heard it before. Yes, I'll go through Rush with you, but I'm not pledging. Stop sulking, Amy said. I'll do everything. You just come with me and pretend you're having a good time. I said fine. I snatched my pen off my notebook and turned my back on her. She finally dug her books out and settled to study. It'll be great, she squealed again. Yeah, I bet. on the other side of the room for that one. Um, another announcement on March 14th um, will be the 2015 LA Writers Conference, which was just, um, which was just announced. It's called uh, Imagination, the Fiction Writer's Life. Um, and keynote speaker will be Nikki Giovanni, ladies and gentlemen. So remember that, okay. Is Dr. Thorne here? Dr. Thorne, so please see Dr. Thorne, um, acting MFA director at uh, Mount St. Mary's College. So make sure to check that out, okay. So, um, all right. Jamaican-born Fiona Zed. Anyone from Jamaica? Jamaica? <laughs> Jamaican-born Fiona Zed currently lives and writes in Atlanta, Georgia. Okay, we've got a little whimper there. Okay. <laughs> She is the author of several novellas and novels of lesbian love and desire, including the Lambda Literary Award finalists Bliss and Every Dark Desire. Her novel Dangerous Pleasures was winner of the About.com Reader's Choice Award for Best Lesbian Novel or Memoir of 2012. Her short fiction has appeared in various anthologies, including the Cleese Press Best Lesbian Erotica series, Wicked, Sexy Tales of Legendary Levels, Iridescence, Sensuous Shades of Lesbian Erotica, and Fist of the Spider Woman. Writing under the name Fiona Lewis, oh my god. <laughs> 
<laughs> Writing under the name Fiona Lewis, she has also published a novel of young adult fiction called Dreaming in Color with Tiny Satchel Press. And as Lindsay Evans, how many personalities do you have? As Lindsay Evans, she has written multiple novels for Harlequin Kimani Romance. Her latest novel, Desire at Dawn, is available now. Please welcome Fiona Zed. Um, thanks for the introduction, and thank y'all for coming to see us and to uh, help Fred and his premiere book in, what, a couple of years? And uh, his um, debut with Bow Strokes Press, which is what we all um, write for and with. So thank y'all so much. Um, let's see, my literary influence is um, Michelle Cliff. When I uh, was in college, I had already been exposed to uh, a lot of white writers, a lot of queer writers, but not very, not any black Jamaican lesbian writers. And when I first encountered Michelle Cliff, first of all, I was just shocked she existed and that she was talking about being a woman of color, being a black Jamaican lesbian, being a woman who loved women, and also being a woman who loved her country. So um, I found her book, Abang, and read it and loved it and realized that I, even though I was transplanted from Jamaica to the States, I could be a lesbian from Jamaica and write about my experiences, um, loving women, wanting to love women, and also loving my country, and even potentially make a living at writing. So she gave me this vision of myself as an out Jamaican queer woman that eventually blossomed into this thing. <laughs> whatever, whatever y'all looking at right now. Um, so I, I love her, even though she doesn't know me, and if I ever saw her, I'd probably do something inappropriate, and she would probably want to call the cops. But, but I am grateful for her having whatever it took for her to, to write and to be out and to, and to be so brilliant and to um, just be, because that gave me the courage also to be. So yay, Michelle Cliff. She's the best. Um, me, I am here to talk about my, my latest novel, um, Desire Dawn. It is the second in a series. Um, it's the Desire series. Uh, the first uh, in this series is called Every Dark Desire, and that was, um, my gosh, it came out a little while ago. Oh, you're still here. Um, that came out a little while ago, and uh, about seven years. And so um, I had a lot of really wonderful readers asking if I was ever going to do a sequel. And I said, no, 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 because... I said, no, 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 because... You know, for me, like I'm, I'm in a space and I'm writing, and once that space is done, then that mood, that sort of, even though the way that I write when I'm in that moment disappears. So if I revisit the, the story or the characters, it's going to be totally different. And so I thought, finally, after seven years, well, maybe I can do that, but instead of writing about the same couple that I wrote about in Every Dark Desire, write about someone else and in that universe. And so that's what I ended up doing with Desire Dawn. Um, at the end of Every Dark Desire is a spoiler. 
well, no, it's not a spoiler because I didn't say anything, um, is something that happens <laughs> that I'm not going to say in case you want to read the first one and be surprised. Um, and so the surprise person at the end of Every Dark Desire, she gets her own story in Desire Dawn. And it's a very different feel. It's a very different story. And of course, it's a, you know, a different character. Um, and I'll stop talking and read from the story. So the main character is called Kylie. And she, when she was turned, was 18. And she still feels 18 in the, in the course of the story. Um, and in this um, section I'm about to read, she and her mother, who is a vampire as well, she, they're hunting. And they're hunting in Atlanta, my favorite town. Um, and I will read. <clears throat> if you can't hear me, just let me know. Quietly, she crept at her mother's side. They moved like ghosts, the pavement like a perfect spring under her feet. The moment her feet touched the ground, the concrete conspired to push her up and forward again until she was moving as fast as a bicycle. A fact that even now continued to astonish Kylie, how fast she could run, how strong she was, how suited to killing her body had become. It wasn't long before she and her mother found them. Pavement became stone, then became grass. An abandoned house appeared on the hill. It had been burned and was now a ruined shell, with kudzu growing over its charred frame, blackened doorways, even its chipped concrete steps. Kylie stopped to watch them, and her mother did the same. As always, she fought that split second of jealousy, of deja vu, whenever she was about to take a human life. Their life was so valuable, but so transient. A thing that was so strong one instant, then gone in a flash, swallowed, burped, and quickly forgotten. Kylie savored their humanity and the thought of taking it from them. She suspected, though, that her mother was meditating on something entirely, entirely different. Belle, her mother, watched the model while a predatory gleam played around her eyes. The model was pretty enough and vulnerable looking. Thick black curls spilled on the side of her throat in a scented fall, while her pale skin glowed in a tight rubber dress that would make it nearly impossible for her to run. Even if she ran, though, there would be no place for her to go. Kylie's hands curl at her sides as her lips parted in anticipation, making room for the slow and almost erotically painful lengthening of her feeding teeth. The inside of her mouth was wet. She was suddenly starving. Belle nodded toward the girl. Take her. She didn't have to say it twice. But at the sound of her voice that Belle did not bother to hide, the humans, the girl, the photographer, looked up in surprise. This is a private photo shoot, the man said, irritated. Kylie grinned. We like private. She clenched her fists, pounded them once against her thighs, and sprang. She cut quickly across the darkness, giving up the momentary anonymity of watching them for much, much more direct involvement. 
It didn't take long for the pair to see what was going on, how unwise it was for them to be walking through the darkness as if they owned it. The night was a territory of beasts, not men, and certainly not humans. Kylie's feet sprang across the grass. Puzzlement, then fear, flashed across the girl's face that tried to track. She tried to track Kylie across the grass, but she was too fast. Kylie remembered, almost remembered, what it was like to watch the eerie vampire speed from human eyes, the blurs of movement, slashing teeth, a savage death, or sometimes a quick one. Kylie grabbed the girl from her shrinking crouch in the charred doorway, shoved her head to the side, and pulled the pulsing artery swiftly to her mouth. Her skin popped like a cherry, releasing its hot nectar into Kylie's mouth. The blood gushed over her tongue, a warm flood of nourishment, coppery and intoxicating. Yes. The girl, the girl had taken something, had been, had been drugged. Kylie tasted that trace bitterness in the blood, a fleeting thought before she staggered to her feet. Oh. Kylie dropped the girl against the wall and spun where she stood, her eyes blinking, blinking. She was distantly aware of her mother and the photographer, Bell dragging the camera from his hands and smashing it against the stone steps, a hand clenched tightly over his mouth to stop his screams as she ravaged his throat. Even in her savagery, her mother was elegant, sensuous. Her mother moved as if she were made of light, her body like a thousand fireflies in the dark evening. The sound of her gulping the down the human's blood was like a song, its rhythmic bass thumping, thumping, thumping loudly in Kylie's head. Belle didn't waste a single drop. She pinned the man's bucking body to the floor with the easy weight of her own dropping on him like a spider, her dress floating around them, partially hiding her body, his body, from view. She muffled the sounds of his terror beneath her hand. Stop it. Please, stop it. The girl's voice was feeble, but it was there. She sagged against the wall, her neck sluggishly bleeding, her eyes glassy and wide. Improbably, her nipples were hard against the rubber dress, and Kylie could smell the thick rise of her body scent in the air. But Kylie shook her head. She did not want that. But the girl wanted her. Even dying, she reached for Kylie, one had one hand held up to her, the other tugging at her tight dress. Kiss me, the girl gasped. Please, kiss me. Her mother looked up from her feast. Give the girl what she wants. Kylie shook her head. No. She fought against the effect of the drugs rampaging through her body. I told you, I don't want that. Her mother looked at her, blood staining her lips red. Don't judge what you don't know. Then she bent her head to finish her meal. Wow. Thank you very much for that. We'd like to open up uh, the, uh, the evening for questions. Does anyone have any uh, questions for our authors? 
Yes. Just on the last the last speaker, all of you were very good, by the way. Thank you so much. Does something does something happen in terms of what gives you an idea to write certain storylines or characters in your own life? Or can you use the mic, actually? Uh, we're going to, because we're podcasting this. So the question, and if you can repeat the question, too. I, I wanted to ask if you were speaking. Um, I have a book coming out. People have a book coming out. So Congratulations. Thank you very much. That's wonderful. It's called Talking Back Voices Villain. Excellent. Um, Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh. Um, let's see. The first question, I think, if I'm remembering this correctly, I'm sort of out of it right now, um, is uh, ideas, where they come from. Um, I get them from everywhere. Um, I could get them, you know, from... I'm just noticing this tree right now. Um, I could get them from, from, any, from a, anyone right now. Um, I know I, I work at a bookstore in Atlanta, and this woman came in. Uh, she was dressed you know, in a business outfit, and she had freckles and had this, this gorgeous sort of like nutmeg-shaded skin and had a very like angular, angular face, beautiful. And when she opened her mouth, she had the, a thick southern drawl. And I hadn't really expected that out of someone like so just, you know, just rigidly, you know, put together and so angular. And so just seeing her and speaking with her um, sparked the idea for a character in my first book, Bliss, the character named um, Regina, who is um, sort of a freak. Um, but, <laughs> but, but also very, um, very intelligent and very calculated. So ideas come to me from everywhere. Um, in terms of questions that people have asked and will ask, they really ask anything from, are you single, to, um, you know, can I get the name of your, your agent, your editor, your publisher, um, and, you know, ask if, if you have workshops that they can take to find out how to get to where you are, whether, yes, can you, can you read our stuff? Yeah, we get that a lot, too. Um, yeah, I mean, they, they vary from intrusive to not. Thank you. Sure, thanks for asking. Can we all yeah. Um, as far as getting ideas, I, I have a really weird brain. I, I used to make up stories in my head to help myself fall asleep when I was a kid, so I thought everybody did that. And I was talking to my friend, and she was like, I don't know how you come up with all these books. And I was like, well, I just tell stories to myself in my head. I was like, don't you do that? And she was like, no. <laughs> and I thought, I thought everybody did that. Just We just all didn't have time to write them down. Um, so now I, I just I come up with ideas just on the fly. I mean, I came up with the idea for Better Off Red when I was in the car. Um, the idea for The Fling, one of my friends like would not shut up about her trainer. And I was like, why don't you just fuck her already? Like, ah, you know, and so I was like, I was like, well, I guess I'll just write a book about it. Like, I, like, like if you're not going to do it, I'll just make something up. Um, so, I mean, ideas come from my friends, from TV, from um, books and stuff that I've read that, like, wasn't working for me. I mean, I know, I don't know if, how big the romance crowd is here, but um, there's a paranormal series called um, The Black Dagger Brotherhood. Um, that's pretty popular. And 
I got really sucked into that, and that was one of the reasons why I'd written Better Off Road, like felt drawn to write it, um, because in the forums, a lot of the readers were asking the author why she wasn't incorporating any women of color whatsoever, and then she had all these white vampires like speaking Ebonics and like with black sense and everything, and it was very strange, and people were asking her, like, when are you gonna actually like introduce some people of color into your stuff? And she kind of just was like, I'm never gonna do that. So I kind of was like, you know what? Like, I want to write about you know queer lady vampires of color because I don't know if anyone else is like really, really, really gonna do this the way I want to do it. So let me do it the way I want to do it. So that's kind of where I'm at now, just writing what I want to write because you know that's what's in my head. But um, for me, ideas. I'm really nosy, really nosy. <laughs> And I like asking people questions. Like when they tell me that something's happened to them, I'll ask, so then what happened next? <laughs> or why do you think that happened? But really kind of introspective questions, not like questions that get their details, but I'm really interested in kind of the motivations behind things that happen in people's lives. Um, I even ask myself those same questions. Um, the other place I get ideas is um, I work in higher ed, I work with university students, and um, university students say some of the funnest, funniest, have the funnest scenarios that happen, and I'll just kind of hear that, and I'm like, how can I expand that into a story <laughs> without giving away, you know, said students, you know, phrase or something like that. Um, but that's kind of my jump off point for ideas is, you know, I observe a lot, I'm really nosy. I like going to malls just to people watch and kind of think, well, what if, or what's behind that red sweater they're wearing, or why are these, this mother and daughter arguing? And so I really observe, look at people, hear things, and then just kind of go, what if, or why, or what would happen next, and things like that. Um, ideas for me, it's funny you said it, because I used to tell my younger sister, we shared a room a lot, me and my younger sister. I'm a middle child. Any middle children in the house? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so being a middle child, like me and my, my younger sister shared a room a lot. And so I used to tell her stories to go to sleep. And then when she was asleep, I would still keep telling the story. So, uh, and I thought people did that. Like I thought people just told stories or tried to guess what people's stories were. Um, as I got older, I, um, I journal a lot. So um, it, it started with like just diaries all the way up to adulthood. I don't call it a diary, but that's basically what it is. <laughs> um, to be burned within an hour of my death. I think I, that's what I said, right? Um, so I journal a lot, and so I feel like I write to figure things out for myself. And a lot of times the easiest way to do that is to um, sort of create people to do things that I wish I could do or that I should have done or like to, ex to explore these different options for things or whatever. And so a lot of times I'll write a story or write a bit of dialogue and go, huh, I guess I am jealous of her or something like that. Like I be feeling, I be figuring shit out. It's really interesting. And so then it, it works. And then I try to see if somebody want to publish it. I don't know. Do you ever find it hard to sit down and write? And yes. How do you overcome that? Okay, so there's this thing called Tumblr, okay? 
we're going to talk about Tumblr and how Tumblr has ruined my life. Um, no, I'm like totally addicted to the internet. Like, totally addicted to the internet. It's like my biggest problem right now. I have like really bad ADHD, so the internet's like the best place in the world for me because it's, I don't have to pay attention to anything for more than three seconds. Um, so sitting down to write is just something I have to force myself to do. Um, and then usually once I get going, then like my ADHD clicks in in like another way where I can only write and do nothing else for like three months at a clip. Um, I have friends here who will be like, oh yeah, she'll be like, no, it's writing time. I'll see you in a year. Like I, when I get in the zone, I'm in the zone and it's like unpleasant and I gain a lot of weight and like kind of don't shower and it's a mess but it's you have to kind of like force yourself to do it um luckily I mean we have a publisher who like if we don't show up with something every once in a while they'll nudge and be like hey got another book like let's do this you're under contract um but yeah you have to like force yourself to do it because the thing about if there's any aspiring writers in the room the thing about um art in general no one cares if you put out your art you know what i mean like if i don't put out another book like i'm sure people will like email me and be like oh can you put out some more books but like after a while they'll just find other stuff to read nobody cares if you don't put out your art so you have to like you have to almost put it out for yourself and say i'm doing this for me first um, hopefully I'm doing this for me and my bank account first, hopefully. And then after that, then like the re then it's like the motivation of the readers and your publisher and stuff like that. That's how it is for me, though. Um, it's so funny you mentioned the notice from the publisher. I just got that email the other day <laughs> talking about um, if any of you are planning on getting your proposals or your manuscripts in between July and December, just let me know. And I'm like, I guess that means I got to get cracking. Um, so in terms of writing and consistency, this is Fred. Um, I write in the mornings um, because I have a day job at a university um, and my time is really important to me. And what I do is important. I like to be productive. I like to do a lot. My life's theme is work after work. And so the morning time is my best time for writing. It's when I'm freshest. It, it's when I'm without the dramas that might come in the day. And so for me, like 4 o'clock in the morning, 5 o'clock in the morning for a couple hours, because it's super quiet at that time, no one's calling you, no one's texting you, no one's really tweeting, so there's really no one to respond to. <laughs> Only you're up. So, um, so 4 o'clock, 5 o'clock is a really great time for me. It's quiet, nothing's happened, and I find it to be a really productive time. Um, in terms of motivation for writing, I, I well, it used to be kind of ego thing. You know, I want to write a book, I want to write a book, whatever. But um, this past May, I had an opportunity to, um, we hosted author Pearl Clegg at, at the university I work at. Um, and I got a chance to drive her back and forth. And I drove her back to her hotel. And we were talking about like productivity and writing and why it's important to always be producing something and not be so focused on like the perfect sentence and the perfect paragraph. Because no one really cares about the perfect sentence or perfect paragraph. What she talked about, and it really got, really kicked me into thinking about motivation is, you know, you want your career to um, kind of be like a body of work that's going to speak to what's important to you. So whether it's super well written or kind of just mediocre written, that you will see the growth in your writing, but that 
a body of work is important. And so always being productive, whether your art is writing, whether your art is painting, whether your art is counseling students. You know, um, it's important to think about life as producing a body of work that scholars or young people or people who will read your stuff long after you're gone um, will say, this represented, you know, my life or this represented that person or something. So that kind of, that made a shift in like motivation for me and so now I look at everything I do whether it's writing whether it's my work in higher education um, whether it's community service as contributing to a body of work that I'm giving back to the world and that was important to me and not focusing on the perfect sentence or whether it's going to sound good when I read it I, I, like, I like to write funny stuff I really don't care if the sentence is clipped or short or <laughs> run on you know I like to write kind of funny stuff that people can relate to um, and if it wins an award, great, but if it doesn't, it entertains somebody. And that's important to me. Oh, you're looking at me too, huh? Other questions? Okay. Oh, go I used to try to write every day, um, but I too, um, I mean, I think we, day jobs are necessary because bills are real. And um, I, um, I teach, and so a lot of times I am tired of reading words and sentences. I'm tired of thinking about sentence structure. I'm, I never get tired of talking about stories, though. So when I have a literature class, that's great. Um, but teaching composition, um, sometimes creative writing, it just drains me a lot. And so a lot of times by the time I get home, all I want to do is chill and like watch Netflix for some time till my eyes burn and it's time to go to sleep, you know. Um, but I've been trying to get better at carving out a little time to write. Um, during the semester, um, I don't teach on Fridays, so I do Fiction Fridays. Um, and I use a, I say pound sign still, I use a hashtag, um, Fiction Friday, um, just to, to sort of motivate myself to always devote at least one day to my work. Um, it gets difficult and it gets pushed back and interrupted, um, but finding something that works for your schedule um, and then committing to it, just like you commit to everything else. So um, it becomes uh, a, a chance, you know, if someone says, well, it's Friday and let's go see whatever movie came out and you say, well, it's still going to be in the theater on Saturday, so I'm going to have to holler at you then, you know. So you, you make it for yourself and then you stick to it. Um, it's interesting you talked about the body of work thing because this this um, novel came after submitting the first novel I wrote a bunch of times to publishers and agents and I got so many rejections and it kind of you know it got me down a little bit um, and so it was Fiona actually who had recalled some uh, prompts we were doing at another time and she's like well write you know write that and I didn't feel like it worked like that because I spent all this time working on this this one novel and then she's like well write this other thing and I'm like but I wrote this thing and um, I couldn't quite connect that and so then it became this idea and it really is I think probably the same experience you had where it kind of suddenly it made sense what it means to have a writing career which means that all of those journals that I have, all those entries, those are potential books and if I say I want to be a novelist I need to start writing books. So they didn't want that one. Well, fine, I got something else. And just having that kind of attitude and producing. So that was, you know, that's a, a huge part of it for me. Uh, what is the role that your identity 
as a black, as a queer black person, um, takes on in your literature? Is it sometimes autobiographical? Does it not even appear? Um, is it that you feel the need to represent people because there's a, a lack of it? Or is it I'll go. I'll okay. go. Um, <laughs> put that down, Fred. Um, <laughs> Um, I'll just say my little tiny thing, but um, for me, having gone through high school and you know all the schooling in the U.S. Um, up until college, it was so rare for me to find books that reflected my identity, whatever it was at that time, whether it was questioning black immigrant woman or um, lesbian woman. I was bi for five seconds in college, you know, like I didn't. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so I didn't find anything that I was reading except for you know Michelle Cliff you know finally that reflected me and I wanted to to see books out there and so I inadvertently took was it Toni Morrison's advice or, or Maya Angelou that said that if you that if you don't see books out there that you want to see you know you write them and so that's what I did and so because of that most of my, my books have been heavily influenced by my black, queer, female, immigrant identity. Um, and 13 books later, whatever it is, books, novellas, whatever, later I'm still exploring those in, in some way or other. So I feel like for me, my work is, is heavily influenced by, by who I am at that moment. And now as, as things are changing for me in many ways, the changes are reflected too in my work. Um, so, like I mentioned, I work in higher ed, and I do cultural events, gender-focused events, ethnicity-focused events on the campus where I work, and I can definitely see the aha moment in a student's eyes when they first read about themselves, or they get a view of history of themselves that maybe they didn't get in K through 12, or they realize that that there is strength in the oppression that their um, underrepresented communities have faced and that they have overcome and that they're not at the bottom, well, maybe historically at the bottom of a ladder, but that there is a sense of empowerment that can come from learning about yourself and telling your own story. And through that work, it really motivates. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.